Well, good evening to you. Uh, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us tonight for Citadel Square's Good Friday service. If you're new, uh, as I said, welcome. Uh, as AJ said, this is a little bit of a unique uh, service in the life of a church. We don't have a lot of Good Friday services throughout the, week, uh, throughout the year. Uh, this is the one that we do a year that really uh, takes on a different hue, a different tone. Uh, and what we're going to do here this evening is take a look at Matthew chapter 27. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. There should be one in the pew rack around you somewhere, a black one. Or if you've got your own, turn to Matthew and find Matthew 27. And we're going to be in 32 to 44. Uh, there's a lot written on the crucifixion scenes, really in all four of the Gospels. They all give you a slightly different picture of what is happening uh, of what is going on in that moment uh, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion is, of course, the unjust trial at the hands of Caiaphas and the religious council. It's uh, Pilate's multiple attempts to try to free this man that he is convinced is not guilty. It's the social and political pressure that he is under at the time to watch him uh, send Christ to Herod, to have Herod question him for Jesus to say nothing and return to Pilate and Pilate eventually to go through with the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, as I said, we're going to look at Matthew 27. The heading in your Bible probably says the crucifixion. And we're going to be in 32 through 44. At this point, Jesus has been delivered to be crucified. Barabbas has been handed over to the crowd rather than Christ. Pilate has him scourged and he puts them in the hands of the soldiers who take them into Pilate's headquarters. They beat him. They strike him, they flog him, they put a crown of thorns on him, a purple robe, and they put a reed in his hand, and they abuse him and mock him and humiliate him. And that prepares Jesus to go to the cross. The crucifixion scene happens uh, as Jesus leaves Pilate's headquarters. He probably heads no more than about a quarter to a half a mile, just a little bit outside of the city center. And we're going to look, as I said, at this paragraph uh, and in this paragraph, really in all of this chapter of Matthew 27, Jesus only says two things. Uh, the entire setting of Matthew 27, uh, Jesus is predominantly silent. If, in fact, if you look at this paragraph as I did and just watch how many times the actors, the main subject of the sentence is not Christ. It's the soldiers, it's the religious leaders, it's the scribes, it's the people, it's the robber, and they are robbers, and they are all acting as the primary character against Christ. Christ is primarily passive in this passage. You really don't see him act much at all. All he'll do is ref refuse some wine, as we'll see, and then be uh, humiliated and mocked and blasphemed and reviled by all the people in the scene. Uh, the Apostle Peter, I think in describing really all of what the material is that we have about the crucifixion scene, puts it like this in his epistle, 1 Peter 2, where he says this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Crucifixions were not a quiet thing. They were a public thing. 
Crucifixion was created by the Persians, the Romans perfected it, and it became a way to utterly humiliate those who would choose to rise as insurrectionists against Rome. They would be done in incredibly public places, mainly on the thoroughfares of the city, going in and out of major cities. You would see these individuals who would be crucified, who would be humiliated. It was intended to be a humiliating spectacle to show that if you go against Rome, this could happen to you. So it's meant as an object lesson for those who see it. And as I said, the, the remarkable thing about this passage is that Jesus says absolutely nothing. But for this evening, what I'd like you to consider is, you know, if, if you're a Christian in the room, then you know Christ went to the cross to take on the wrath of God for our sin. That's a common Christian confession, that we know the crucifixion is the pouring out of God's wrath upon sin. But what I'd like you to consider this evening as we look at this story, we know that to be true, but often what we can miss is the humanity of what it must have felt like and been like for Jesus, as John puts it, to come to his own and his own did not receive him. If you have ever felt rejected, then this passage tells you that Christ has felt rejected. If you've ever felt abandoned, then this passage tells you that Christ has felt abandoned. If you've ever felt mocked, if you've ever felt embarrassed, if you've ever felt humiliated at the hands of people who ought to love you, then what I want you to see in this passage is the crushing human toll not to mention the crucifixion. What's strange about this passage is that Matthew barely mentions the act of crucifying the Son of God. It's really mentioned in half of a clause of half of a verse. But everything that surrounds it is the emotional, relational toil of people who ought to love him and who do not. So if you'd pray with me just for a minute. And then we'll look at these few verses here together for our time this evening. Father, we pause and just acknowledge the horror of Christianity. The Son of God had to come and die because sin was that egregious against you. That he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross, not because of anything he did, but of things that we have done. Things that we have said and thought things that we have believed wrongly, for the hatred in our heart against our brother, for our hatred of you and your rules and what you say, that your son chose to come, chose to die for us. So Father, would we see in this passage the profound dedication and discipline of the Son of God? And would we leave here this evening thankful for what you have done on our behalf and see just a moment the cost of that choice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 32 is where we'll start. As they went out, they're leaving the governor's headquarters after Jesus has been mocked, has had the robe put on him. As I said, this, the, the false scepter of the reed in his hand has a crowd of thorns on his head. And they give him his clothes back and they now begin to lead him out of the city and they leave the governor's headquarters, Matthew records for us, and they find a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry 
his cross. Simon probably becomes a believer as a result of this. His sons are mentioned in Romans chapter 16. And Paul actually refers to this man's wife as someone who had done him good like a mother would do her son good. So this is a man who's briefly mentioned here and who's basically conscripted into military service to carry the cross of a condemned criminal to the place that Matthew mentions in verse 33. Verse 33 says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which is the Hebrew name for it. Matthew, being a Jew who's writing to Jews, translates it into Greek and tells you that it's a place of a skull. And Matthew, if you've ever heard the term Calvary, Calvary is the Latin term for this place. So that Golgotha and the place of the skull and the Latin term Calvary are all put together here to let us know it's a very particular place and it's a place that is reminiscent of death itself. It's probably a place that's used by the Romans to crucify and to put individuals on public display. It's a well-known place in the city at this time. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, verse 34 says this, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Commentators uh, are kind of split on this. What is this wine uh, meant to do? Uh, there's kind of some extra biblical literature that would say women at this time who would care for the, the victims of crucifixion would try to give them uh, wine to basically numb themselves. Some say that the soldiers give the wine to Christ at this time to make him more pliable, to get him a little bit inebriated and a little bit out of his senses, which makes him easier to crucify. He won't fight as much when they nail him to the cross. But other commentators think that this is a moment where the soldiers demonstrate a, a profound sense of kind of torturous mania. That Jesus, after losing massive amounts of blood through scourging, often those who were scourged wouldn't make it through the scourging and the flogging of the soldiers. He hasn't had anything. He's been up all night. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't drunk. He, he's losing massive amounts of bodily fluid. And the soldiers, in, a, in an attempt to continue to torture him in a way, give him something so bitter and so vile that it would make his thirst worse. In fact, as you read through this passage, you'll have multiple cross-references if you have a Bible that has those of several different places. I'll mention this one here, but it's probably a cross-reference that refers to something David writes in Psalm 69. Here's what it says in Psalm 69. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. As David in his day looked for sympathy from those who were persecuting him and found none, so Christ goes into this scene finding no sympathy, no encouragement, no friends, no favoritism, no encouragement whatsoever as he goes to the cross. Everybody has abandoned him. He is completely alone. And even his tormentors seek to make his pain worse. As I said, Matthew's description of crucifixion is very simple. It's almost too simple. It's perhaps the most massive understatement in this entire paragraph. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him. Now, crucifixion, you don't die in, in, a, cruci in a crucifixion from blood loss. 
Crucifixion is a slow, multiple-hour process where you eventually suffocate to death and your lungs fill with fluid. As your hands are nailed to the cross beam and your feet to the upright, there's a consistent strain and pressure upon your chest to be able to pull yourself up and to breathe and to rest back down. So even as Jesus dies at about noon on this Friday, there are still the robbers who are alive at that time. And they just don't want to put up with them taking so long to die, so they break their legs, which allows them to not have the strength to be able to pull themselves up to breathe. So Jesus is summarily nailed. They divide his garments among them by casting lots. He's probably stripped at this point all of his clothes, all of his worldly possessions are now given into the hands of these soldiers and they cast lots for them to see who's going to get his clothes because he's not going to need them. That's another cross-reference if you have a Bible there from Psalm 22. It says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And what's interesting for Matthew is that Matthew is a very particular writer. He goes to great lengths to tell you throughout his gospel how many Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. He's not lazy in that way. Because he's a Jew writing to Jews, he wants the Jews who read his gospel to know, here is the Christ who has fulfilled this passage, and this passage, and this passage. But when it comes to the crucifixion scene, the horror of the scene almost takes your breath away. And what Matthew does as a writer is take away the tendency we might have to read this and to think logically and rationally and biblically about this setting. Matthew, as a disciplined author, gives you echoes of these things as you read it. And if you're an Old Testament Jew, these passages come to mind, but he won't take the time to show them to you. He'll simply let you feel the emotional weight of a passage like this. Verse 37, over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, up to this point in the drama of Matthew chapter 27, Jesus has gone into the religious leaders' council with Caiaphas and the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day. And Jesus, uh, they said, if you are the son of God, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, you have said so. So the Jews desire to crucify Christ for the reason of blasphemy. They don't crucify him for healing the lepers or taking care of the blind or raising Lazarus or any of those things. They pin the charge of blasphemy on them, but the Jews can't crucify. So the Jews take him to Rome and the Jews tell the Romans, he has called himself a king and we have no king but Caesar. And what the Romans will do is treat him as a political insurrectionist. So that when Jesus will be rejected by the Jews because he claims to be the son of God, he's committing blasphemy. He'll be crucified by the Romans because he's an insurrectionist and is against Rome. But at the very same time, the message that Pilate writes and either hangs around Jesus' neck or hangs on the cross beam ahead of, above him is incredibly ironic that this is the testimony of what these, this nation will do to its rightful king, isn't it? It's an incredible irony to watch God's people who shout out to Pilate, we have no other king but Caesar. We would rather be ruled by an oppressive regime than to accept this man as our king. 
and Pilate writes it out and he puts it on the top of the crossbeam. As if to say to these people, here is what you will do when the king comes into his land. Do you remember how Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? Jesus enters into Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah 9 verse 9. If you were with us on Sunday, you remember that passage. That on Palm Sunday, everybody's rejoicing. And here's this fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that says, Behold, your king is coming to you. And from that point on in the narrative of the book of Matthew, every time Jesus is referred to as a king, it's always with uh, revulsion. It's always with disdain. It's always with hatred. How dare you tell us you're the king? And it ultimately leads to his crucifixion. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. From this point on, until Jesus' last breath, no one will show compassion. No one will show any sympathy. No one will empathize with what he's going through. And what I want you to feel as Matthew records what comes next is what you're going to hear and feel is the relational rejection from the people who ought to worship him. And you're going to hear it from three groups of people. You're going to hear it from the common people who are walking by. You're going to hear it from the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and you're going to hear it from the robbers ultimately. And every single group of people will mock, blaspheme, and revile him. So before we go on, I... I think we need to, we can easily take a passage like this and make it merely theological, but I don't want you to miss the profound human toll that this must have weighed upon Christ. We know he's crucified for the sins of the world. We know that he's about to experience the wrath of God. But we've all felt what, it li- what it's like to be rejected, haven't we? We've all felt that reality of being, of feeling like nobody sympathizes with us and nobody empathizes with us. Nobody understands what we're going through. And before we go in for you to feel what Jesus must have felt as he hung on the cross, I just want you to pause and recognize the emotional toll, the relational toll that Jesus must have felt as his disciples are gone. And his very, the people who, he ought, who ought to worship him reject and revile him. Verse 39. Those who passed by derided him. It's literally, derided is, it's interesting that Matthew uses that term derided. It's actually technically the word blaspheme. They blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So subtly, Matthew, in two ways, lets you know what these people are doing by using the term blaspheme. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting the very one that's on the cross who is hanging there for their sin. 
And then they accuse him with something that actually isn't recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in John, but it's used in the trial. It's used as one of the witnesses against Jesus in the trial before the religious leaders. They come forth and said, I heard him say he will destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And here are these people, after watching Jesus be flogged, after watching Jesus be crucified, after watching Jesus be humiliated, say, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. You said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. What are they saying? You talk a big game. Jesus, you, you said something impressive, but you're not that strong. You said you could do miraculous and amazing things, that you could tear down the temple and you could rebuild it. But you're weak. You're helpless. You're not who you said you were. But one thing the crowd doesn't understand is that being the son of God doesn't mean eliminating pain from your life, does it? It doesn't mean protecting yourself. It doesn't necessarily mean doing amazing things, although the amazing things that Jesus has done point to his identity. What's particular about being the son of God in the crucifixion scene is being faithful to his, what his father wants him to do, right? It's being faithful to the end. If he is the son, then he's obedient to the father. And he's proved that throughout his whole life. Now, consider that and watch what the chief priests and the Pharisees say here in verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders. Now, maybe these individuals will know more about what's going on. Maybe they'll have a stronger biblical background. Maybe the common people out there just saw and heard Jesus make some big statements and consider Jesus as weak. But the religious leaders say something remarkably similar to what the common people said. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him, what? Come down from the cross and we will believe him. We watched him do miracles. We watched him heal the blind. We watched him raise Lazarus. We watched him heal the lame. We watched him make the paralyzed walk. He was powerful then, but he's not powerful enough to save himself now. The thing that'll prove that he is who he says he is is that he will come down from the cross. Now, now consider the hardness of the heart Consider the, the reality of sin in this moment that has left these individuals so hardened to the miracles of Christ, so convinced that this is an individual, as Isaiah said, who is smitten by God. And watch what they say next in verse 43, which is another reference from Psalm 22. But serves to highlight another aspect of what they're accusing Jesus of, what they expect of Jesus, who, who they think the Son of God ought to be. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. That reference is also from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 6 goes like this. I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. 
Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes all have a picture of God. It says if you trust God, God certainly wouldn't allow this to happen. So on one hand, the common people look at Christ and go, you're too weak to come down. You talk a big game, but you can't do what you say you can do, all while Jesus is doing the very thing he said he would do. The chief priests and the scribes look at him, and their accusation against him is not that he's weak, but it's that God certainly doesn't love you. Look at the spectacle. Look at what you're going through. And it's interesting that both the people and the chief priests have this refrain that centers on whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Do you remember how the temptations of Jesus start in the very beginning of his ministry? If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Remember that temptation? For he has commanded his angels and you will not strike your foot against a stone. And now at the end, as Jesus is wounded and bleeding and blasphemed and reviled and mocked, the words of the tempter in the mouth of his enemies again. If you're the son of God, come down. He doesn't love you. You're not strong enough. Can you feel the temptation in this moment that Christ must be feeling? It's one thing to fast for 40 days. It's another thing to be nailed to a cross beam and to have your enemies go. If you were the son of God, you could get out of this, but you're not strong enough. If you were the son of God, God wouldn't treat you like this but to prove that he is, in fact, the faithful son of God. He stays on the cross. He does what he said he will do. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's faithful to his heavenly father. Because he will be faithful to the very end. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. No friends, no support, no encouragement, no sympathy, blasphemed, mocked, reviled. What we're going to do is we're going to read the remainder of this chapter together. Jared is going to lead us through the, re- the remainder of this reading. And what I want you to think about, we're just going to take a couple minutes to just ponder the emotional and spiritual weight of this moment and what it cost Christ to go to the cross on our behalf. We're going to take a couple minutes to do that. When we come back together, we're going to read the remainder of this passage. And by the end of this passage, what you're going to see is that the way Christ dies is different than anybody else these Romans have crucified before. And what the, the soldiers will say is that surely this man was the son of God. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to take a couple minutes of of just silence and meditation on what we've heard here this evening in this scene, and then Jared and the band will lead us on.
Father, we pause acknowledging the weight of a passage like this. Where we are stunned at the faithfulness and the discipline that you would display to stay on the cross. We're stunned at the love that you would display for all who would come to you in faith, acknowledging that they are sinners in need of a savior. We're stunned that this is what it costs to rescue sinners. So Father, as we ponder for these next several minutes, the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified, would you warm our hearts with the affection of Jesus Christ, who did this out of faithfulness to you and out of love for his people, that he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and in just two days we'll celebrate that he ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And Father, for all in this room who feel at times like they're abandoned, who feel at times like those who ought to love them, but who don't, that they would know that Christ is a empathetic and sympathetic savior because he's felt that too. He's known rejection. He's known being mocked and being reviled. And we can gain great encouragement by his example of faithfulness and his kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen.